Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the Book of Romans, Pastor Murphy showed us three purposes of the law. To silence man, to bring guilt upon man, and to give man the knowledge of sin. Today we'll study more about the third purpose and how the law gives us the knowledge of sin. I'd like you to turn your Bibles with me, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 3. We'll continue in our text in Romans, chapter 3. I would like to read from verse number 10, and then we'll come down to our text in verse number 20. Um, Romans, chapter 3, verse number 10, reading from verse number 20. We have been dealing in the last two messages from Romans. Our focus has been on the matter of what is the purpose of the law. And we're going to pick that up this morning uh, in, the, in the 20th verse. But let's look at Romans chapter 3 and uh, verse number 10. And uh, follow with me please as I read. As it is written... There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're all together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of ass is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursings and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Look with me at Romans chapter 5 and verse number 20. And see that he reiterates this again in verse number 20 of chapter 5. He said in verse number 20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where there sin abounded, grace much more did abound. The apostle Paul is here telling us that there's a reason why the law came in. You notice that he mentioned the law entered that the offense may abound. The word entered means came in by the side. Now later on in the book of Galatians and in Romans, later in the, in the later chapter, Paul is going to argue that the law came in 330 years after the promise. So the law does not annul the promise. See? But the point the apostle Paul is saying here, that there's a reason why the law came in. There was a function for the law came in. Came in. And, the Bible, and he tells us that, that, that sin might abound. The word that is used here for bound is the, he, the Greek word called pleonazo. 
And the word pianazo means more or greater in quantity. And what Paul is saying that the law came in to give weight to sin. That man would understand the weight of sin and the gravity of sin. This was the forensic purpose of the law. The law did not come in to deal with sin because the law cannot deal with sin. But what the law could do, the law could make the sin seem more offensive to God. See? There's no law that could ever save. The apostle makes that very clear. But that's not the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to make the offense abound and to make it greater in terms of consequence. It's to give gravity to sin. Now you see the problem we have when we're dealing with evangelism? When we're talking to people, we're preaching about all different, except bringing to them the weight of the law. To make their sin appear exceedingly sinful. So we are living in a world where because the law has been shelved, the law has been put aside, we're living in a world that has lost its God consciousness and the sin consciousness. Yet the church is told to go out there and preach the gospel. But there's no need for a gospel if people don't feel the gravity of their sin. So we've got to rediscover as a church the imperative of the use of the law in our evangelism. And even in our preaching. Not as a means of being saved. But as a means of, of heightening the gravity of human sin. Look, I would challenge you to read the sermons of some of the great evangelists of the past. Read Sam Jones. Read Dwight Moody. Read Charles Finney. And you will see again and again, they always have a series of sermons that they preach on the law. They understood the proper use of the law. Listen to any modern evangelist now. And you'll see there's absolutely no reference to the law. We have created a situation, that is the church has created a situation. Where man can now sit under the gospel, the glad tidings, and hear it preach, and it's like water off the back of a duck. It has no impact whatsoever because we have not done the, the work of plowing up the hearts of men and making them consciousness of the need of, of God and of the gravity of their sin. See? I want you to also look again at uh, Romans chapter 7 and see that Paul calls attention to this very purpose of the law again. Romans chapter 7. Now he says some things in this particular passage that uh, might lead somebody to think that the law uh, is sinful. In, in verse uh, Romans chapter 7 and verse number 5, uh, he said these words. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. What does he mean by that? The apostle Paul is saying... That the law provoked the rebellious nature in man and stirred up man's rebellion to cause man to do what was wrong. See, That's what the law did. I've said many, many times, if you have a piece of property, the easiest way to get people to go on it is to say no trespassing. The easiest way. I guarantee you. Now your grass will be there, nobody will walk on it. They'll buy, but the moment you put a sign saying no trespassing, I guarantee you, somebody's going to challenge you. Now that's exactly what the law does. By telling man what not to do, 
it stirs up in man rebellion against what God says. So Paul says the motions uh, in verse number 5 of sin was stirred up by the law. And that might have led uh, some people uh, to believe that the law uh, therefore was, was not good and it, and it was sinful. That's why he goes on. By the way, look at what he says in verse number 7. What then? Is the law sin? And then he said, God forbid, nay, I had not known sin but by the law. So if, my, if the fact that the law stirs up man's sin in himself. The, the question was, well, Paul, are you saying that the law is bad? It, 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 no, 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 no. Uh, Paul is saying, it does that so that I can know what sin is. Again, the Apostle Paul is underscoring the important point. Uh, that the law uh, gives him a knowledge of sin. In verse number 7 he says, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Now, I don't know if you noticed, the Apostle Paul felt pretty good when he looked at the law. Read Philippians chapter 3, he said, concerning the law, blameless. He passed himself on the back and said, when I look at the law, I can say to you, I keep the law. But now in Romans, he said, there's one commandment that slew me. One commandment that showed me that I can be outwardly right, doing absolutely nothing wrong outwardly, but inwardly wrong. And that's the word covetous. Look what he said in verse number 7. Nay, I had not known sin, but the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had sent me, thou shalt not covet. So the law not only shows me that something is wrong externally, but the Apostle Paul said it does something, it shows me that sin is also something internal. That's what covetousness is. I can't see covetousness. I can't see lust. I can see the actions that lust produce, and, but when you begin to understand, it goes beyond the outward behavior to the inward man, the desires, the motives. That is why those evangelists of the past used to stir people up so much because they, they, they understood this principle that dealing with not just the outward cosmetic uh, factors of human being, but they also knew the inward passion, the desires. And the word covetousness there clearly shows us that the law is not only, sin is not only something external, sin is something actually internal. Covetousness establishes you that it's not known just about you being right outwardly, but are you right inwardly. See? So it gives us a knowledge of sin. If you look at verse number uh, 14, uh, chapter 4 verse 15 for just a minute. He says, because the law worketh wrath, for where there is no law, there is no what? There is no transgression. See? Now let me, let me ask a question here to the believers. How in the world would you ever get a man seeing his need of God unless you can show he's a transgressor? How are you ever going to show him he's a transgressor if you don't use the law? You tell me. You tell me. See? It's impossible. Transgression means there's some absolute standard that I violate. But if I don't use the absolute standard in my evangelism, in my witnessing, I have no basis of charging a man with transgression. 
So the Apostle Paul once again is establishing the importance of the law. And he's telling us the law not only silences man. The law not only stirs up the conscience. The law also shows us what sin is. It shows the knowledge of sin. I want you to look at chapter 7 and also verse 13. Verse 13. He says, what then? That which is good made death unto me. God forbid. But sin that it might appear sin worketh death in me but by that which is good. That sin by the commandment might become what? Exceedingly sinful. Again, the Apostle Paul is saying to us that the purpose of the law is to pinpoint sin, drag it from its mystery and its hiding, and shh, put the, flood, the, the light of God on that sin and show us the exceeding nature of man's sinful nature. See? That's what the law does. See? It shows us the sinfulness of man. And when a man reaches that stage where he understands his own sinfulness, he then begins to grasp how foul and how vile his heart and his nature is and how rebellious and self-will and how his unbelief and his selfishness and his sinfulness offends a holy God. He must come to that realization before we can actually begin the work of evangelism. What I'm saying to you is that the, the law makes a man the emperor without clothing. Thing. It, 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 it dismantles him. It takes off all his cloaks of self-righteousness and shows him before God that he's a naked sinner before God under divine wrath. That's the design of the law. It elucidates sin. By the way, the word that uh, Paul uses here in chapter 3 and verse number 20 when he says, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in sin, but by the law is the knowledge of sin. The word that Paul uses here is the intensive form of knowledge. The word gnosko is knowledge. And Paul could have used that by the law is the gnosko of sin. Uh, by the law is the knowledge of sin. But Paul doesn't do that. He uses the word epigonesco. He uses the intensive form. And what Paul is here saying is by the law is the full knowledge of sin. See? The apostle Paul uses this term about 15 times in his writing. It's one of his favorite terms. Um, but what he's trying to tell us very clearly is that the law has the power, the very power, to give us a fuller knowledge of sin. Uh, it wants us to make, the law, make sin very clear and to make us conscious about it. Now this is the challenge confronting the church. And it's a problem because... Let me say a few things very quickly. It is hard for us to speak about sin because sin like death is an unpleasant topic. See? Nobody likes to talk about sin. It depresses people. It seems to degrade people. It seems to demean people. It, 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 it's a negative concept. And today, if you know anything about the human psyche... We are not inclined to any concept of negativity. As a matter of fact, in the broader society, the emphasis is on a positive mental attitude. And any doctrine or dogma that brings in anything that seems to be negative, man's modern mind doesn't want to entertain it. 
So I wonder why, by the way, that's the, why all the evangelists you see on the radio, on the television, never mention sin. You tell me. I challenge you. Watch those television shows for the next month and tell me how many of them mention sin. It's not mentioned. It's about ratings. It's about an audience. It's about selling books. It's not about declaring truth that would offend man. It's about being as less offensive as possible. So what we've done, we've actually diluted the gospel and we're fearful of mentioning these things because they seem to offend people. Today the 11th commandment seemed to be, thou shalt not speak anything negative. See? And that's why it's so difficult to deal with a subject like this. But the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that it's imperative as part of the gospel, as part of the redemptive plan of God, that the law plays its forensic role in, first of all, shutting men's mouth, making them feel guilty, and giving them a knowledge of sin. See? It's a preamble to salvation. The church has seemed to have forgotten that. The second reason why it's so difficult to deal with the subject, not only is it an unpleasant subject, but as I mentioned in the previous sermon, uh, guilt is so foreign to the, to, to the modern mind. As a matter of fact, I will tell you this. We have lost our objective sense of guilt because we have lost our sense of a transcendent reality that exists outside of man. Now if there's no transcendent reality to whom we are ultimately responsible, why should we feel guilty? So we are living in a world where the sense of guilt is lost not only because the, the church has refused to preach the law and declare the law, but also because the, the, church, the, the world has lost a sense of a transcendent reality that we are, we are responsible to. And I want to say to you this morning that without a transcendent theistic reference point, there's the complete loss of any concept of guilt. In the framework of the human mind. See. Thus today. People who. Don't do people harm. Who don't do anything that they think. Is really bad. They don't feel guilty. Because there's nothing to be guilty about. Because they don't, they don't see their relationship. Anything to do with a, a transcendent God. So as long as I. Treat my fellow man okay. As long as a, a situation between consenting adults, we don't hurt each other, we're okay. And part of that is because there's no transcendent reality any longer to which man has a reference point. When I was a lad and I was a boy, whether I did you something wrong or not, I always felt guilty. You know why? I wrestled with my thoughts. And uh, there are a lot of people who thought David Murphy was the nicest guy in the whole village. But in the back of my mind, it was a cesspool. The thoughts I used to entertain in my mind, if those people would only see me and know what I was thinking, they would never ever have made those kind of statements that he's a nice boy. I was a terrible boy. 
But you see, here was the problem. I always felt guilty whether I did wrong or not because I knew that my thought life was wrong. There was a transcendent reality. I was always conscious there was one I'm going to give an account for, not only for my deeds, but for my thoughts and for my motives. So whether you, I did something wrong outwardly, I always felt guilty. So you could have preached the gospel to me then, and I would have felt guilty because I related my life to a transcendent reality, but, but that is gone. Completely gone. And that is why today, man has lost his grasp on this entire concept of sin. People who, if they see anything wrong, is in action, but they don't ever come down to the point where they believe that there's motives, wrong motives. For example, do you realize that every time a man commits a horrible crime, they always try to believe that he just couldn't do it? I'm serious. They always believe that something made him do it. So what do you do? You call in a psychologist and you go into his background. You find out how he was, how he was treated when he was a boy. Mommy didn't discipline him the right way so he came from a dysfunctional family. So what we do, he just murdered 10 people but we're not going to take, take his life. We're just going to give him six years in jail. We're looking for something outside the man as to why he does what he does. And that's the problem because we do not understand the nature of sin. That it is something mainly internal. That I can be so wicked, so evil. That I can murder somebody deliberately. Modern jurisprudence do not entertain those kind of thoughts anymore. They always try to find something external to the individual to explain his actions. And again, you know why does this happen? Because we no longer understand in the Western world the concept of sin. See? It's a problem that I don't know how the church is going to solve it. But I believe that unless we get back to the proper use of the law, the forensic use of the law, the biblical use of the law, as, as, as Timothy said, to use the law lawfully in our preaching, in our teaching, we will end up with a church where it's just a social club where people just come and relax, and you can, they can hear uh, anything, but it has no real impact on them because there's no conscious sin, there's no sense of guilt. And hence, the sermon becomes a form of entertainment rather than something to move us to action, to repentance, and to seek God's forgiveness. Now, I want to say to you, therefore, as a believer, that it's an imperative that the evangelical church reassert, reassert the proper biblical use of the law in its evangelism and in its preaching. And we need to take the law out and dust it off and do a series on the law so that men can understand what sin is before God. Now, how does the law give us a knowledge of sin? And I want to deal with that uh, uh, this morning. First of all, one thing that the law does is that the law shows us that sin is an inward disposition or inward inclination. It's not something that we merely do wrong acts, but it's an inherent disposition that inclines us to do wrong. It's not simply that we 
are sinners because we sin. It is more that we sin because we are sinners. In other words, sin has to do also with my motives, it has to do with my drives, and it has to do with my desires. Uh, our Lord condemned anger with the same ferocity as he condemned murder. Our Lord condemned lust with the same ferocity as he condemned actual adultery. Now remember that lust is not the act of adultery, it's the thought of adultery. And if it's anything that shows us very clearly the nature of sin, is that it is an inward disposition. It's an inclination within a person. It's not limited just to my acts. It has to do with my thoughts. And it has to do with my desires. As a matter of fact, I would say to you that no outward act is ever committed except there's a process of evil thinking first. See? It begins in the mind and it begins in the heart. Now, when a man begins to grasp that, to grasp that, I, I was talking, I forgot, one of the young men of the church the other day, and I made a statement to him, I think he, he, he grasped it. I, I said to him, you said, the more you, the closer you get to God, the more you hate yourself. That's a true statement or a bad statement? I'm telling you that. The closer you get to God, you really hate yourself. You know why? He really shows you up for who you are. See? Really does. It's one of the most painful things in a Christian experience. That you grow deeper with God and closer to God. Rather than feeling good about yourself, you feel terrible because He shows you things that you never even thought about. He showed that even when you say things, your motive was twisted. The point I'm making here this morning, that's what the law does. It shows you that it's, a, it's not just the outward actions. It's the inward. In, as a matter of fact, the inward position is even worse than the outward. Because you don't do all of the inward things that are there. You do some of the external things. So I'm saying to you this morning, one of the things that the law does, in, in helping you to understand the knowledge of sin, that it tells you that Sin is an internal disposition. It's an inclination. It is something on the inside. Number two, uh, the law shows you that sin is disobedience and rebellion against God's truth. You know, the Bible assumes that all persons are in contact with the truth of God. Whether you be a Jew or whether you be a Gentile, the Bible said the law of God is within your heart if you're Gentile. The Bible said the law, the law revealed his law to the Jew. So whether you be a Jew or a Gentile, the Bible assumes that you're in contact with truth. And that you know what truth is. And that the basic person knows right from wrong. Every single person sitting here this morning. I'm saying you know what is right from wrong. Look, if you're a five-year-old child, you know what is right from wrong. You know it is wrong to steal the cookies. Nobody has to tell you that. You know it is wrong to be selfish. Nobody has to tell you that. It's ingrained in you right from wrong. And the law showed you clearly that this basic inborn disposition of man is inclined towards rebellion and disobedience. And that is why Paul says, by the law is the knowledge of sin and there be no transgression without the law. But by knowing what the law teaches, 
and violating that law, we become now guilty before God. And it becomes a matter where it's a matter of disobedience and rebellion against God. I would ask you one little question this morning. Is there any human sin that you can think of that is not covered under the umbrella of the law? Can you think of one? What about greed? Is that covered? Of course it is. Thou shalt not covet. You don't have to use the word greed, but the principle is there. You should not want something that is not yours. You should learn to live a life in contentment dependent upon God. When you go outside of that, it comes to the level of greed. See, What about exploitation? Again, it is there. See? That you're supposed to love your man as you love yourself. You ever exploited yourself there? What about abuse? What about racism? What about corruption? What about uh, harassment? What about murder? What about uh, marriage? What about sodomy? What about infidelity? What about vulgar? What about pornography? Is it there? It's covered by the law. There's not a sin that you can mention this morning that doesn't come under the umbrella of the law. And that is why when we look at what is happening in our society, and we see the degradation that is getting worse and worse and worse, we, we've got an instrument that can cause men once again to, to revive a consciousness of sin. And that's the, the declaration and the understanding and the teaching about the law. So I'm saying to you in the second case, the law not only shows us that sin is something internal, and, and the disposition is internal, but the law also shows sin is disobedience and rebellion. That man willfully rebels against uh, God's law. And then the third thing that the law shows us is that sin is a disability. And what I mean by that is that sin is not neutral. It alters the character of the person. No man can sin and be the same. The nature becomes corrupt. One of the important Hebrew words for sin in the Old Testament is twisted. That's one of the words, twisted. And that's what happens when a man uh, engages in sin. It causes a, a disability. It, it, it twists his values. It twists his thinking. It distorts his mindset. He's never the same. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans explains exactly how this distortion, this, this twisting takes place in man. If he says in chapter 1, the first thing is that God gives them a knowledge Number two, he says that man rejects that knowledge. Number three, he says that when man rejects that knowledge, it now leads to futile thinking. Number three, that futile thinking leads to a darkened understanding. And when a man with a darkened understanding, it leads a man, God to turn a man over to a, a reprobate mind. And what follows a reprobate mind? Are those 19 sins that Paul mentioned in chapter number one. See, He's never the same. When sin enters a life... It, it renders man disabled. It twists him. See? It distorts him. See? He's often worse than when he first started. See? It's a disability. And it causes a disability in a person. And you find that in Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 9, 29 to verse number 31. Then number 4, it also shows us sin is a failure to fulfill an ordained 
standard. That is why the Bible says all have sinned and what? Come short of the glory of God. What did it come short of? There's a standard that God has set. And man always falls short of that. By the way, the, the term that is used here are athletic terms. See? If you're doing a, uh, throwing a ball, one of these heavy balls, you, you can come to, uh, if it's 100 feet, you can come to 99.9 uh, feet, but still not get the 100. See? And the Bible says that's the case with man. He always falls, uh, falls short of a standard. Now the truth of the matter is, sometimes he might not do the right thing, but sometimes he might do the right thing, but the right thing is done with the wrong motive. Even in doing that, he's falling short of God's standard. You remember in Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, verse 5, and verse 16, our Lord looked at the Pharisees and he commended them for their fasting, for their tithing, and for their almsgiving. But then he turned around and condemned them because they were doing the right thing with the wrong motive to be seen of men. See? So even though they would have come up to human standard that they're being kind and, and, and being uh, thoughtful to help people, yet the motive behind what they're doing, our Lord points out that that was wrong. They didn't come up to the standard that God had required. And then fifthly, the law shows us that sin is a displacement of God. And what I mean by that is, the law shows us that when we place something or a person or anything in the supreme place of God, Paul says, and God, the law tells us that that is sin. When we take a finite object, no matter what that object is, and we elevate that object and put that object in the position of God and give commitment to that object or that person, and we give them the loyalty and the commitment and the devotion that is due to God. The law says that that is sin. See? So we have to, need to understand that the law of God also shows us that when we displace God in our lives, when something takes the place of God in our lives, that too is sin. By the way, the, the great sin of Israel in the Old Testament is not that they abandoned Jehovah. They never really abandoned Jehovah. The great sin of Israel is that they had Jehovah, but they brought in the false gods along with Jehovah. See? And that, that is like Israel saying to God, look, we've got you covered. You're still number one, but we still got these others. That's like a man, a woman telling her husband, honey, you're number one, but I've got these other flirters with me as well. See? The law shows you that God will not countenance any rival and we must not place any object or anything in the place that is due to God. See? The law does this. So what I'm saying to you this morning as a church, I'm saying to you again that if we as a church are going to do evangelism properly, if we're going to impact our world, we're going to have to impact it, yes, by preaching Christ, but we've got to understand we're dealing with the world that has lost its sense of sin and lost its sense of guilt. And we've got to use the tool that God has given to us in our preaching to people. We've got to take back up the law and we've got to declare and explain to people what the law does. If we do not come back to this position, 
Men will not understand what sin is. They will not feel guilt. And the Apostle Paul says, it will shut man's mouth out. It will stir up man's guilt. And Paul said, it will show man what sin is. That's the divine purpose of the law. Then why are we afraid? So afraid to use it. I want to say one final thing. And then I will not come back to this subject of the law. This will be the third message on it. I want to say to you, there's another purpose that the law does not given here. This is where Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, the law was given as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. See? That's the purpose of the law as well. This is not an exhaustive treatment of the law. Paul is just explaining the use of the law in the means of evangelism. Because the whole theme of Romans is salvation. And Paul is trying to show where the law fits into the, the economy of God when it comes to salvation. How it has to be used. In Galatians, Paul is dealing with another subject. But he points out very clearly that the law was given as a schoolmaster to bring the believer to Christ. When we declare the law and men feel their sin and men feel their guilt, they put them in death. What must we do, sir? If this is our desperate state, what must, then the law says, there is Christ. That's the problem. It's, it's a sign saying to man, you now need to turn from me the law and turn to the one who can deliver you from you. That is, the law is designed to bring us to, it's a schoolmaster. The Apostle Paul will deal with that in the book of Galatians. I, I don't know, um, this morning, speaking to this congregation, I, I really don't know if you see the value of what Paul is saying. I see it all the time. I speak to people and it's very clear to me that when I'm talking to them about being saved, it's like they're in la-la land. We're talking about. See? I talk to people and they have no concept of sin. I mean, what do you mean by sin? I don't do anything wrong. They've lost that. I don't feel any sense of guilt. Even when you talk to people who, who know they're doing wrong, they don't have any sense because they feel the wrong is just against their fellow man. They don't understand that the wrong is against first against God. They don't have this transcendent concept of a God that they are comfortable for any longer. And I must tell you, I've not been very successful in my evangelism in talking to people because I don't force the gospel down people's mouths and tell, say a little prayer. Unless I feel that God is convicting you and you're under conviction, I will never tell you say a word of prayer. I must sense when I'm dealing with you that God is really dealing with the heart of this person. Not that they're listening to me and watching the TV and say, yes, yes, I believe that, you know. Well, before I leave, would you like to say the sinner's prayer? Who don't want to say the sinner's prayer? See? So I'm not a very successful person when it comes to those kind of things because I'm aware that I can't bring a man out of his darkness until he knows he's in darkness. And that's the biggest challenge we have today. Really, it's a, it's a, listen, it's such a massive task that we have that it is so overwhelming. How do we bring people back to where we were in the 60s? You know, most of the people my age and, and, and uh, older than I, when I asked when they got saved, they got saved in the 60s. But in the 60s, there was a consciousness of sin. There was a consciousness of God. That is gone. What I'm saying to you this morning, 
is that we are shut up to Scripture. Until we take the imperative of Scripture that we need to bring back the law as a means of showing man their sin and their guilt. And showing them the knowledge of sin. We are preaching in a vacuum. We are witnessing in a vacuum. And we will not have any impact. And we will not have any real results. See? I don't know if you see the dilemma, but it frightens me. It really does. And it bothers me greatly. See? That this is where we are. And how did we get here? How did we get here? We put ourselves here because we just put aside the law. We were afraid of using it. Now Paul tells us, pick it up, use it again. See? And even the suggestion of using that, you will have, no doubt, people sitting in the pews saying, uh-uh, this isn't song right. See? That's not what we were taught. Well, not ask you what you were taught, and ask you what the Bible teaches. See? Let's get back to Scripture. And let's use the Scripture as God says we must legitimately use it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the teaching that goes so much against the grain of our thinking. Oh Lord, we are faced with a world that is rushing towards hell while singing and while dancing. There's no brokenness. There's no pain. There's no sense of grief. There seems to be no fear whatsoever. Oh Lord, help us as your people. Show us the way back. Help us to plow out the fallow ground of human hearts. But help us to, to know that we can only do that. Not by speaking pleasantries to the ears of men. Not by speaking to them and reassuring them, affirming them. How good they are. How nice they are. How intelligent they are. How much potential they have. This was never the mode of evangelism. In the past. Nor should it be in the present. The problem with man is his pride. His ego. His self conceit. He needs to be awakened. But you've given us a tool. To bring about that awakening. A tool that we have shelved. A tool that we have ignored. A tool that we have not used. We've created the chaos we find in the world. We were supposed to be the light and we weren't the light. The salt and we weren't the salt. And now we have a world that is so corrupt. But though corrupt, yet so oblivious to its true condition. Reawaken among your people the proper use of the law. As you told Timothy... A man must use the law lawfully. It is not for the righteous, but for the ungodly, for the homemongers, for the covetous, for the extortioners. Lord is designed for men outside of the pale of God's mercy. Would you help us as a church and as individuals to learn? the discreet use of the law in our dealing with men. Lord, to speak to the conscience of men. And we can only do so if we bring the weight of the law to bear upon their conscience.
apart from this, they will not see their need of turning to Christ. Forgive us for our failure. Forgive us, Lord, even for our ignorance. Forgive us for our good intentions. Forgive us, Lord, for creating the mess that we find ourselves in today. Help us to move back to where we should be and to use the tools that you have equipped us with. Help us to put aside the human tools of psychology, positive thinking. Help us to come back to the stringent use of the law of God on the hearts and the minds of men. Only this and this only will bring about some change, some radical change. We look to you, Lord. We look to your word. And we ask for your grace to minister according to your teaching. May we be obedient. And may you help us to know how to wisely do this. Accomplish your purpose. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy moves on to the next section of Romans, chapter 3. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.